All righty. <laughs> okay. And so, pardon me, I'm having a few technical difficulties. Nothing new, inshallah. But I think we are just about okay. And so you can all hear me, just nod or something. Yes, inshallah. Okay, good. Okay. Let's pull up the chat box. Chat box is almost ready. All righty. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so we're continuing our exploration of Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, first, uh, for those who are new-ish, who haven't been around for, for the whole thing so far, the goal of the overall course is to make it all the way up to Ayah 39. And so we're, we're a bit past the halfway point. Now, for those who want to continue past IF39, you're actually going to have to pass the test. And we can discuss that as we get closer to it. Yes, Suleiman, he's laughing really hard. He's like, yeah, bring it on. I can pass any test. Okay, so, so that's, uh, that'll, we'll discuss that uh, at a point in the future, inshallah. Uh, so... Thus far, we have now had two commands of, of the Quran. The first command, anyone want to type it out or use your microphone to tell us what it is? Anyone? First person. Be the abd of your rub. Be the abd of your rub. Excellent. And that is what Sammy typed. That's what Abdullah typed. Sammy beat Abdullah because Sammy is the youngest one in that family. His fingers are the quickest, mashallah. Okay. What is the second command? Let go of anything else that you associate with a higher power. Well, yeah, yeah. Do not do right. that. Do not knowingly make partners to Allah. Exactly. So that's the second command, which we saw at the very end of of Ayah twenty two. Now, keep in mind, what are we saying here? This is not how the Prophet, peace be upon him, received it. The way we're taught that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received the 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 Quran was first, the majority opinion, overwhelming majority opinion is that he received the first five ayahs of Surah Al-Alaq, so forth and so on. And then, and then at a later point, he receives ayahs from Surah Al-Muntafir, Muzzamil, receives Surah Al-Fatiha, so forth and so on. And he is acting according to what he is receiving. And so the first uh, instruction he receives is recite in the name of Allah. And then from there, uh, arise and warn, and then also stand up all night a little more, a little bit less, and recite uh, what Allah has revealed of the Quran, and so forth and so on. But then, as he is going through those 23 years of, of prophethood, of receiving revelation, peace be upon him, he is also arranging where all of the ayahs belong. Where is he getting this from? This is coming from Jibreel alayhi salam. The same source that is telling him about the revelations is the same source that is telling him where
Can you hear me now? Okay. So, so what we have today, we call the order of collection or the order of compilation, which is different than the order of revelation. It is different than the chronological order in which the prophet peace be upon him received the Quran. Now, why is it a different order? Among the theories, one is that at the time of the prophet peace be upon him, he's receiving ayahs immediately relevant to what's going on in his life at that moment. Right, he's received this much, now he's received, has received an instruction to go further. Now he's received this much, now he's received an instruction to go further. But for us, a lot of those points are not as immediately relevant. So the order of compilation, the order of collection, which is how you and I read the Quran, is often looked at as a generalized uh, approach to, to the Quran. And part of the exercise we're going through is to show that there is wisdom that we can definitely extract, that we can definitely find from the way that the Quran is ordered. It's not just something as simple as we have Al-Fatiha and then the biggest surah and smaller, 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 smaller. No, I mean, it's, uh, as you can see, I hope it's apparent that there is uh, an order and a logic that we can derive from how it is set up. Because the first command makes sense that that is the first command, right? Be the Abdul The second command makes sense that it would be the second command. It would make less sense if those two were switched around. And so now we're raising the point of what if you have doubt? So we have these commands from Allah Ta'ala, but how do I know I should follow this? How do I know, you know, uh, that this is truth? Why should I follow this? So this gets into Ayah 23 and 24. Sorry, I had to reach out and grab my phone. So looking at Ayah 23, we often frame Ayah 23 as a challenge to the world. There are other ayahs that sound like 23 that are actual challenges. This one is a prescription. If you have doubt, do the following. So if you have doubt, ayah 23. Okay, so if you have doubt in what we have revealed to our abd, to our worshiper. Then bring a surah like this. Now, what is this pointing to? It depends upon whom you ask. Either it's pointing to Surah Al-Baqarah or it's pointing to the Quran itself. Okay. okay. Uh, and call upon witnesses. Min dunillah, other than Allah, in kuntum okay. If you are truthful. So to put this in simple English, what are we saying? If your issue is that you have doubt, then here is the prescription for you. So who is being addressed in the first command? If you look back at that, who's being addressed? Ya ayyuhannas, oh people. It's a command for everybody. Who's being addressed in the second command? Uh, can you not hear me? You can hear me, right? Okay. Who's being addressed in the second command? Well, the address has not changed, so it's still all humanity. So the first two commands are for everyone. But now for this passage, if you have doubt, meaning you're being addressed if you have doubt. If doubt is not your issue, you can keep going forward. But if you have doubt, this is your prescription. Write or find something that can compete with al-Baqarah, or write or find something that can compete with the Quran. And bring witnesses that, that will confirm. 
if doubt is your issue. You can't bring Allah as your witness. Why can't you make Allah your witness? Like, why can't I say, you know, ABC, here is, uh, here is the, uh, the, um, you know, the, the fulfillment of the prescription to doubt, and God is my witness. Why can I not do that? Well, first, I mean, regarding the questions of, well, if this will solve and witnesses, why can I not bring God as a witness? Some of you are overthinking what should be the easiest question in the world. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying the ayah says you cannot bring God as a witness, and I'm simply saying, why can't you bring God as a witness? Because if they're denying the, the servant of God, they're directly challenging the God. No, nope, you're all overthinking it. Because how are you going to produce God? How are you going to get Allah Ta'ala to say, yeah, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is fulfilled the, the prescription. Again, some of you are using the word challenge. I'm saying this is not a challenge. This is a prescription. But the first point, you can't use Allah as your witness because how are you going to bring Allah to, to be your witness? So now let's talk about what does it mean to bring a surah like it? Then we'll talk about what does it mean to bring a witness? What does it mean? Uh, this is read a couple ways. The most common way we read this in our community is something that can compare in terms of linguistics. Okay. Now, that would work if you are someone who has some specialty in linguistics, right? The rhetoric of the Quran, the balagha of the Quran, okay? which most people don't have. But a simpler way to look at it is the Quran is saying, here is how reality operates. And to, to put it in perspective, if you think of, think of scripture not unlike the way we think of science fiction or fantasy or mythology. Like what is part of sci-fi? Sci-fi is saying here's how reality operates. So some of you are Star Wars junkies, some of you are Harry Potter junkies, some of you are, are uh, Marvel, Marvel junkies, some of you are just marijuana junkies. But anyway, the point being, it's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke, okay? Thing you're paying attention. So, so how is Star Wars saying that that reality operates? Right, that there is this force that binds us and penetrates us, and there's a light side of the force and the dark side of the force. Right. Uh, anyone, uh, those of you who are younger, how do we? Uh, how does uh, Harry Potter tell us reality operates? Anyone? I know Sammy's typing right now. I mean, someone can just talk. So you have muggles and wizards. So, so what are we saying? That Harry Potter is saying that there's the apparent world and then there's where the muggles live and then there's the real world, which is where the wizards live. And there's certain doorways into the real world and the real fight is in that real world between good and evil. And the muggles don't even know what's going on. Right, Abdullah, you agree? You have proof? Okay, very good. Okay, Marvel. According to Marvel, how is the universe operating? Anyone? You know, some of you are Team DC, but their movies are usually horribly bad. <laughs> it's complicated, okay. So what are you saying? Marvel is saying the world operates more or less how you think, except the universe is much larger. There's, there's intelligent life in many, many other planets where they don't necessarily follow the same rules of, of our world. And then you also have other forces that are trying to take over the world. 
And at the center of power is what? What's at the center of power of, of marble? The infinity stones, right? Those, those are the center of power. Okay, so now let's go to how Islam says reality operates. Good. So Islam, look at what we've covered so far. Uh, how does, in the infinity gems, thank you for the correction. Okay, how does, uh, according to uh, what we've covered so far or anything you know about Islam from Sunday school and such, how does Islam say reality operates? Thank you, Saren. Anyone? Not why. Today is a test for tomorrow. <laughs> okay. okay, so part of it is today is a test for tomorrow. Part of what we're saying, uh, at least a little bit of what we have so far of how reality operates, is that all is created by a supreme being. And the default of the supreme being's relationship with creation is Rahmah that even with all the darkness that there is in the world, all the sin, all the corruption, all the crime, the default overall is still Rahman. And then what will happen is that there's, this world is temporary. There is going to be a, mo a moment in the future, a period in the future where everyone who has ever lived will be held to account for the choices that they made, with the end result being that people either go to paradise or to hell. Some people who go to hell will only have to pay off what they need to pay off for full fairness to happen, and then we'll go to paradise. And so true reality, as Mahan is saying, is actually unseen. Okay. Now, in the Christian paradigm, how does, how does reality operate? Anyone? And everyone's welcome, welcome to chime in, including former Christians. We could also say, in terms of the Islamic paradigm, how's reality operating? That Allah Ta'ala, this is if you're getting the thought of Shah Allah, Allah Ta'ala is running everything, and then he has levels of angels that are sort of the robots keeping everything in order. So we have belief God sent his son to save us all, Christ redeems. Yes. And so we're saying that there was this period of creation at the beginning, and this event with the tree, which led to the fall of humanity into earth. Good. And then the challenge for humanity has been to get redemption from Allah. And from Adam and Noah, humanity failed. And so everybody was wiped out, except for Noah and a few people, peace be upon them. And humanity was given a second chance. And then that redemption came with Jesus, alayhi salam. Good. And then from there, there is going to be a posthumous day of judgment where those who have accepted Jesus as their redeemer will have eternal life. So, essence of God is relational. Uh, Dr. Mahan, I need you to explain that. And then uh, I think, Stephanie, we, we covered both what you and Abdullah are saying. Um, and so, so the point I'm making is that every scripture, every work of philosophy, and all these works of fiction are giving you a depiction of how reality operates. Good. And so the test is you go through the text. You need to know the text. And your intellect is being empowered. Go test it against everything else. Because if this is truly from a law, then all of humanity can get together and cannot come up with something that can compare with it. 
If it's not truly from Allah, then either someone's already come up with something that can compare, uh, or you know, you can find somebody who can. Okay. Now, the question is, how is this going to address doubt? So first, let's take a step back and think of what, what doubt is. How would you, any of you, how would you define what is doubt? Remember, when I'm actually taking a drink of water, it's just to add drama, because then by the time I finish my drink, you want to make sure you answer. Okay, so doubt is doubt of la is lack of certitude, lack of belief, uncertainty, struggling to believe, I think is a better, is a better uh, definition. Not believing what you can see would also be included that, not fully accepting something. Yeah, all of these are somewhere in, in that universe. I like struggling to, to believe. Questioning is not necessarily doubt, is someone might have true belief, as we'll see with the story of Ibrahim in a moment, peace be upon him. Uh, uh, but uh, this is sort of someone who is struggling to believe. Someone who wants to, but is unable to, for whatever reason. Now, we've been talking about, uh, we've been giving metaphors. Anybody remember what the metaphor was of gratitude? Way back from Al-Fatiha. Gratitude is like water, yes. What was the metaphor of anger? Anger is like fire, yes. Uh, fear, what is fear like? Lightning. Gratitude or doubt is like you have a palace and there's a leak in one spot in the palace. And you know it's there. And you may try to take the time to find the source of the leak to fix it. Or if you don't, it's going to keep leaking. It's just a little drip. But if you let it drip long enough, it's going to seep throughout the whole structure of the palace, and one day everything's going to collapse. That's how doubt works. Okay. It's like this little tiny drip inside of a palace. What is the palace? The palace is the iman in your heart. Okay. This is the nature of doubt. Now, doubt should not be confused with the vicissitudes, the highs and lows of iman. Okay. One of the points you find theologians debating is, does iman that internal faith in your heart, that sense of security in your heart, is it stagnant or does it go high and low? Yeah. And, and it seems that the majority opinion is that, yeah, it definitely goes high and low. Yeah. And as you study more, as you practice more, it can also go higher and higher and higher and higher, right? This is when we were talking about moving from Islam to Iman to Ihsan and such. Um. That's a big question. We'll come to that, Shalom. So, so what is the point to think? The rising and lowering of Iman is not the same as doubt, as the struggle to believe. Good. And so it might be that we have, we have however many, we have 40 plus people in this room. We have people at 40 plus different levels of faith. Good. We might even have people in this room who actually have doubt. They're struggling to believe. Now, but they actually want to believe. That's who's being addressed here. So, so what are we saying here? That in generations past, according to the narrative in the Quran, uh, what was a cure for their doubt? It was the miraculous. Yeah. You see some miraculous thing happen, and that may, inshallah, cure your doubt. Uh, for us, it seemed to be something often more intellectual, at least as a first step. Now, I, I said, I've been saying over and over that intellect or alone is not going to give you yaqeen, but it can help you in removing doubt. How? The same point. You study everything 
until you get satisfaction of the heart that even though all these other texts and scriptures might be profound, might really tap into insights about how reality operates, but as a single package, nothing can come close to the Quran. If you go through the process, it's going to happen. Either you're going to reach a point of satisfaction. Yeah, I've come to accept. I've read this and I've read this. I've read through the Bible. I've read through the works of Aristotle. And this one actually makes the most sense. If you don't do it, then the doubt is going to persist. But if you do do it, either you're going to reach the point of satisfaction in your heart or you're going to give up trying. You're going to decide, okay, this is too big of a task for me. Then we'll talk about what to do about that in just a moment. Now, what's the issue with witnesses? So witness shahid, shuhada, what are we saying here? Now, what is the term when we're using the word shahid? How do we commonly translate that into English? Anyone? Martyr. Why do we call a martyr a shaheed? Because that person is illustrating their truth to the point that they're willing to give up their life rather than give up the truth. Meaning, what is the ultimate thing you have? The ultimate thing Allah Ta'ala has given you is your life. You can frame that as your life, you can frame it as time, etc. And so we're saying a martyr is someone who's saying, I would rather give up my life than give up the truth. And I'm not telling you all okay, that you all have to like, you know, hold on to the truth, you know, even if your life is in danger. I'm saying that's what a martyr is. So what is a witness? A witness is someone who's coming forward and saying, yeah, you have found something objectively, according to what I can tell, that, uh, that can depict reality as well as the Quran has. So we're moving in from what my subjective analysis, this works for me, to an objective. Now you're bringing other people in. So forget subjective and objective for, for a second if that's going to confuse you. You're basically bringing in people who are confirming that you have found something that can compete in its depiction of how reality operates. And think again about what's being built into this. You are being empowered. Intersubjective is a cool term. Yeah, Michelle. Uh, you are being empowered to use your intellect to the fullest. Think. Use your full brain power. You're not going to break the Quran. Use your full brain power to check and go through everything. So does it make sense? Those of you who are asking how this uh, address uh, uh, doubt, you literally, it's basically saying you need to see it with your own eyes. So let's give me a different, let's give a different example. And uh, if time permits, uh, I'll start going through some of the questions right now. Those of you who have, or in fact, I can just pull up the eyes right here. Let's see if we can do a screen. Uh, okay. If it's easier for you, pull up your own Mus'haf and go to Surah 2. I think it's I-260. Yes. So, <clears throat> to give you a little background, you can, I recommend on your own time to take a look at, at this passage. Look at the eyes that come above it. And what's taking place above it, you have uh, a lot of discourse about Allah having the power to give life to the dead. Okay. And then we have Ibrahim, alayhi salam, super prophet. Okay. Meaning perhaps in all the history of prophets, perhaps number two behind Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. 
Okay. Super profit. Okay. I mean, super profit is not an official Islamic term. You know, those of you who are part, part of the Marvel universe, don't get too excited. Okay. So Ibrahim alayhi salam is speaking to Allah. So he's talking to Allah directly. Good. Can you show me how you give life to the dead? Allah is responding to Ibrahim directly. Okay. He says, do you not believe? Okay. And Ibrahim alayhi salam is saying, yes, I do, but I need to satisfy my heart. Okay. So Ibrahim alayhi salam, who, and who is literally speaking back and forth with Allah. I mean, try to even comprehend that. If you're struggling with doubt about the Quran, you're definitely going to be struggling with that story. Okay. But I'm saying, for the moment, consider the story where Ibrahim is speaking one-on-one with Allah. Allah is responding to him directly. And Ibrahim is saying, can you, alayhi salam is saying, can you show me how you give life to the dead? And Allah Ta'ala then gives him instructions. Take these birds and mash them up and then take pieces of them, put them on these four hills, and then they're going to fly back. Okay, that is what would work for Ibrahim alayhi salam. I do not advise you to get four birds and mash them up to see see what happens. I mean, unless you want to try, you can see. You know, maybe you'll come back with some cool stories. Anyway, the point is for him, that was his answer. For us... The answer is I-23 and 24. Although in his case, we can say a subtle difference is that his issue is not doubt as though it is, as much as it is satisfaction of the heart. Here, doubt can be cured by satisfaction of the heart. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, can you all see me? Can someone nod? Okay. All right. Because I'm getting the, your internet is not uh, sound warning. All right. <clears throat> So back to here, we're saying here is how Islam is saying the world operates, okay. including matters of justice, including matters of, of injustice in terms of how to conceive of the world. Okay. And then come up with something that gives you a more full depiction of reality and you'll reach a heart, a point of satisfaction, or you're going to reach a point where you give in. Now, what do you do where if you have truly tried, but you feel like, okay, I can't try anymore. If that's your issue, then we go to the next ion. And again, technical difficulties. Can you see my, my Loyola screen? Can you nod if you see it? Anyone? Yeah. Okay. So Ayah 23, the translation, again, the usual translation doesn't do it uh, justice. But of course, there's always issues with translations. But let's see for our purposes, what does it say? The Quran is saying very, very categorically. If you don't do it, and you're not going to be able to. Meaning, if you don't find something that can compete with the Quran, and you're not going to be able to, okay, then have then work to develop taqwa. Here it's being translated as fear. We said fear is more of a, of a contemporary meaning. Work to develop taqwa. And we saw the first instructions on how to develop taqwa two days ago. Meaning, if the intellectual approach 
isn't working because it is too huge for you, then immerse yourself in obedience. Is the point I've been making over and over again is that the pathway to developing uh, yaqeen, certainty, is actually obedience. Increased obedience. On the flip side, even if I've gone through the process and I realize I can't do it, then my next step is naturally going to be to work to develop taqwa. But again, here's the catch. Uh, the way doubt works is, especially when shaitan starts putting uh, ideas in our mind, is for us to start thinking, yeah, well, something can probably, there is probably something. Okay. You have to go and look and see that it's not there. You have to go look and use your full capacity and see that it's not there. Or shaitan's going to put the thought in your mind saying, well, look, there's people who believe in Christianity. There's people who believe in Hinduism. There's people who believe in Judaism. So there, there, must, you know, there must be those things. You go and compare them head to head. But notice the first thing you have to do is you have to get to know the Quran very well. How the Quran is saying reality operates. Now, speaking in terms of my professional work, uh, I have to make a, a point about how serious this specific issue is, is because doubt in belief in Islam is increasingly one of the most common issues that students come to me, that come to me with in, in the office. Okay. Uh, Mahan, I'll get to your questions in just a moment, Shalom. And for those of us who are old fogies, old people, okay, I mean, the young people, you probably don't even know which term old fogey is. I mean, Solomon, have you ever heard this term? Old fogey? No, okay, yeah. So, so the point is, those of us who are these, these, Hannah's heard of it, very nice, these, these crusty old people, we have multiple things that's holding us into, into Islam. Okay. Uh, some of it is just back home culture. Okay. And, and all kinds of ties connected to that. Okay. And so all kinds of cultural elements that are tying us into Islam. Uh, those people who are younger and younger have less and less of those ties or those ties are weaker and weaker, if not non-existent. Okay. And then if we're speaking of people who are raised Muslim, who were born young enough so they have no memory of 9-11, then their entire lives, America has been at war with Muslims, right? Those of us who are crusty old people my age, we've had periods of life where mainstream heroes were Muslims. Muhammad Ali, Kareem, the Sears Tower was built by, was designed by a Muslim, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, you have some mainstream heroes, but for the most part, not really. Good. And, and so the point I'm suggesting is that for those who are younger, there's far less holding you in the Dean and far more pulling you to go out of the Dean. Okay. And then on top of that, you know, think of the struggles that a convert has, especially if a convert doesn't have a community to tie themselves into. Good. And then Olfak made a point uh, about people who are in Muslim-majority countries. Oh, no doubt. Uh, uh, it's almost as though uh, with the slight increase that's happening of people leaving Islam in, uh, in America, by slight increase, I'm still making it a, a steep slope. Um, the numbers are skyrocketing in many, many Muslim-majority societies. And, and fundamentally, what are we saying? That uh, Islam seems to be completely irrelevant to many people's lives. Okay. But one of the first steps in the process of removing doubt is, of course, someone need, needs to want to remove the doubt. Okay. Meaning, if you're truthful, the doubt is your issue. 
And then you need to go through this process, at least a little bit. And here's what I'm suggesting very, very bluntly, that uh, if you are grounded to some small degree in the Quran, and you go and look at how other traditions operate, you're going to be very, very grateful for Islam. Things that you are, we often assume that every religion has, you might be surprised that uh, a lot of people, a whole lot of people don't have. And I say that not as criticism of other traditions, I'm saying that as gratitude for what we have. Okay, uh, so having said that, what is the second part? It's have taqwa. And so, so Mahan made, Dr. Mahan made a very important point, shield yourself from the fire. So we're basically saying, okay, whether I have conviction of it or not, the fire is still real, the fire of hell is still real. So work to start developing uh, taqwa, at the very least as a protection for that. Now the last part of these eyes is, is also pretty interesting. It is, uh, what is the fuel of the fire? It is people okay. and stones. Uh, what are the stones? And don't say Mick Jagger, Ron Wood, you know, all that stuff. Say, uh, tell us who are, what are the stones here? So one understanding is that it's the idols at the time of the prophet peace one, but they're also being thrown away. And the hearts of the people, like this, like I've taken this class before. No, no, the, the hardened hearts of the people who are refusing to soften their hearts uh, are, are the stones. And so who's it prepared, prepared for fundamentally? The people who have rejected. So once again, uh, take this not as a challenge. Okay. Take it as a, uh, what's the word? Take it as a prescription. Uh, okay, let's look at uh, some, some questions. Let's just make this really big. Uh, Abdullah, where does that come from? Where does uh, what come from? Uh, some Muslim majority countries are also struggling with doubt. Intellect can't be cured, but heart can. Intellect can be satisfied but often the deeper satisfaction is satisfaction of the heart. Uh, the hearts being stones. This is, this is uh, uh, in terms of the depictions of the hardened hearts. So if we go to, go to Surah or Surah al-Baqarah, Ayah 75, right after the story of Bani Israel and the cow. And after that, your hearts became hard like rocks. Uh, I was speaking to a friend who used to practice Christianity. They were discussing the idea of blind faith that persists despite doubt. What is the role of this in our tradition? Blind faith, what some people are regarding as blind faith, can sustain, can sustain many people through the course of their lives. So there's a very a famous story, I think it's attributed, and, and Dr. Mahan can correct me, there's a famous story attributed to uh, Fakhruddin Razi, uh, or one of his students, uh, who walks out of this house and says, I have come up with 10,000 proofs for God's existence. And he's telling this to these women who are just spinning some clothes. And one of those women says, well, he must have 10,000 doubts. Yeah. I don't have any. Yeah. And then that same person, I guess, I don't think it's Razi. I think it's one of Razi's, Razi's students, you know, as he's approaching his mortality and saying, you know, I wish I had my Iman, basically rest of the Iman of those old spinsters. And so, so blind faith is often looked at as a negative. It's more the question of what is it that sustains you? If you're being raised with our educational system in this society, you're being raised instinctively to question everything. And because we're a minority population in this society, our, our compulsion to question everything about ourselves is greater. Okay. 
And so every degree of minority that you are away from the white Christian alpha male, you probably have a higher degree of self-questioning just by growing up in the society. And so uh, if you can sustain your imam through the course of your life, focused on acts of worship, which I do believe a whole lot of people can, yeah, then you're, you're okay, inshallah. If, however, you're being challenged and you start resorting to the behavior, like we see of the Quraysh, this is what we saw everybody do in our past, this is what we're doing, then what will at the very least happen is that your kids' faith will not, kids' faith will not sustain. Uh, with that said, I feel like doubts and questions are often conflated, especially in Islamic school and whatnot. Uh, sorry if you, can, if you can explain that further, because what I'm hearing is that if someone goes to full-time Islamic school, uh, often it does not help, it might hurt them, and in that case, my my uh, anecdotal experience would agree. Ahant is saying, what about people that say this is too conformist, this, that this idea ideology doesn't allow critical thinking? That's the modern criticism of Islam, isn't it? That it is cult-like? I think I just literally illustrated that it's the opposite where the Quran is literally telling you to go read everything else and you're not going to find anything better, but you got to use your full, you know, intellectual prowess. You know? I mean, that is a common criticism against faith. And I do think that is true for a whole lot of faith, but I also think it's a whole lot. Uh, it's also very true for, for a lot of atheism as well. A lot of atheism is just straight up dumb. Some of it is good, but some of it is just dumb. Does this, every time I see 23, I think about Jordan. Does this uh, I-23 imply a criteria for satisfaction of worldview? That is such an abstract question. I need more explanation. Wassam, I have been confused as to the satisfaction of the heart in the Ibrahim story. I'm not getting why he needed Allah to prove his power to satisfy his heart and what he meant by that. Can you please explain more? This is the exact point that I'm making. We have Ibrahim alayhi salam talking to Allah, and even he is saying, I need satisfaction of the heart. And so think of you and I, as far as I know, none of us are speaking directly two ways to Allah Ta'ala. If he can need satisfaction of the heart, then it's completely understandable that any of us would need something like that, if not stronger. That's the basic point to take from that story, or a point to take from that story. Uh, a lot of the chat, actually, when that computer crash got knocked out, uh, if I can, if there's other questions you have, if I can ask you to, to, to repeat them or retie them, retype them. Uh, any other questions? Having Aqidah-related questions such as the existence of God, the afterlife, is so taboo and is often immediately attributed to doubt. I don't know whether I believe or not questions. I want to understand how XYZ works. So, Sarah, are you saying that uh, make, you know, makes asking questions difficult? Yeah, that is... Uh, I mean, so, so, so what's often at play here? In a lot of our full-time Islamic schools and our Sunday schools, weekend schools, speaking as someone who has to, used to run one, and we have some people who, who are, mashallah, still part of it. Uh, a lot of times uh, we have a whole lot of people who are very, very sincere, but not as many people who are trained in pedagogy and teaching who can engage these types of things, right? I mean, here we have, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mohi and Dr. Nasheen who basically taken over uh, the, the Sunday school, and they, mashallah, are very, very engaged with ideas and such. And so the point is that curiosity is a natural part of your design, right? Remember when we talked about, I don't know if you were here at the time, so we talked about the body, the mind, and the heart, and we said each one has a natural thirst, and the natural thirst of the, of the mind is knowledge or curiosity. A lot of times, the, the pedagogy, the philosophy of education, many of our schools shuts down curiosity, and that will catch up to a person at some point. 
Uh, a point that, that I'll be making um, uh, a little bit later on, but might as well discuss it now, is whatever level of faith all of you are at, you will find yourself every decade or so having to reinvent your faith, reinvent your understanding of Dean. Because what sustained you, let's say age zero to 20, is not going to sustain you to age 30, because you've lived 10 more years of life, you have a better, different understanding of life. And then what, what sustained you up to then is not going to sustain you until you're age 40. And most people will bypass that and not, not address it. But the questions are going to persist. And often you can't sustain that for a lifetime. And so then what you start seeing is in their 30s and then in their 40s and higher, you see a lot of people who start engaging in sins that they never could have imagined they would have done when they were in their 20s. And part of it is because the iman that they had or the structural framework Struggle that sounds redundant. The framework they had for understanding uh, Islam, God, reality, isn't sustaining them. Abdullah, the landscape of American poetic individualism. This sounds exactly like Abdullah, mashallah, so he'll probably have to translate. Then seems to be the perfect setting for the development of a Quranic worldview. Inshallah, you know, you might have to write a whole book to explain what that means for, for, for all the rest of us. Other questions. So, so Sarah, essentially what I'm saying, uh, I think I agree uh, wholeheartedly with what you're saying, especially because of what I witnessed in my office uh, from the people who graduated from full-time Islamic school, that when they get to college, often uh, what they've been given cannot sustain their Islam. Any other questions about anything, anything at all? Okay, Stephanie, regarding calling together witnesses to attest to a imagined reality in the face of doubt, how can we test reality described in the Quran if we cannot see it yourselves? You're saying you don't see reality right in front of you? I'm saying, look at how reality operates right in front of you. That's what I'm saying. And then the Quran is saying, even on top of that, here's what else is going on. That's what you're testing. And what makes more sense? That's literally what we're saying. We're not talking about an imagined reality. We're starting from what is the concrete right in front of you. And so one point to think about when we discuss, uh, uh, um, uh, before getting to the Day of Judgment, we spoke about all the mercies of Allah. We raised the question, okay, is life fair? And overwhelmingly we said, no, life is not fair. But there are some religions that say what goes around comes around in this life. And we're saying, no, that is not how reality operates. And so, uh, so it is not, so I'm suggesting it's not as imagined as, as you're uh, suggesting. You mentioned that if you are on the path of arrogance, it is very hard to get back and that if a person keeps choosing to be arrogant, Allah lets them do it. So how about atheists who, or kuffars are later guided? You asked me to hold on to this question to read the topic of doubt. Okay, so I'm gonna give you part of, the, part of the answer here. And then part of the answer, we'll have to revisit when we get to the story of Shaitan, the accursed devil. And so if uh, someone, is this if someone has reached a point of no return you can reach a point of no return in belief you can also reach a point of no return in rejection of belief good if a person has not reached a point of no return in belief they can turn away good likewise if someone has not reached a point of no return in terms of rejection of faith they can turn back and so a couple examples as we know, many examples we have from the companions of the prophet, one ultimate one would be the person I'm named after who has literally wanted to kill the prophet, peace be upon him, uh, Omar ibn al-Khattab, and, and you can't really get much worse than that. And, and then we saw how quickly he was turned around. And then there are many people who fought against the prophet, peace be upon him, literally fought against him in battle. And 
uh, became uh, and still became believers. And so this is also uh, often taught as a caution. Be cautious. Uh, so we're often be very cautious about accusing someone of being a kafir, right? The prophet peace upon him says, if you call someone a kafir, one of you is definitely a kafir, right? Um, but it may be that the person you are calling a kafir today might later on actually become a better believer than you are. And, and Omar would be an example of that. Uh, regarding, um, uh, so that would be essentially what we're saying. That is someone who is not persisting in their arrogance. But it is also possible to get out of arrogance. But uh, uh, Sadia, let me know if that is answer your question. Dr. Nasheen, do you see general trends in people's iman going down as they grow older? Uh, uh, I see both. But I do see a lot of people who, so it's as though um, your life, um, your resilience is increasing, 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 and including your spiritual resilience. And then it starts to plateau in your 30, less in your late 30s, in your 40s. And then it seems to start to go down. Your resilience to life. And I'm connecting that, tying that directly with your, um, with your spiritual resilience, your iman. Uh, that seems to be the pattern about human nature, yeah, like coronavirus. Can you say more about the why the ayah uh, following the challenge? I don't call it a challenge. Of bringing a sewer like this appeals to fear of punishment from fire rather than any kind of motivation. Yeah, mashallah. Uh, so here, my thought, and this is this is just uh, more speculation. Why is it saying fear the fire? Uh, because up until this point, everything has been mercy, 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 right? And so now it's sort of like we're cutting to the chase saying, if that isn't enough, okay, the fire is still real. Yeah. And another way to think about this is, is that, um, you know, al-Fatiha is holistically Rahmah. And we might infer through the Day of Judgment that there's some limits to Rahmah or those on whom is anger, those who are astray, there might be some limits to Rahmah. Then we talk about people of Taqwa going to paradise, and then we get into serious stuff, golfers and monafits. And so, so that's, that's, uh, that's my speculation in terms of why that's being written. Can we make that generalization regarding people losing their faith as they get older? I'm, I'm speaking very anecdotally in terms of what I've been seeing in terms of patterns. Yeah. I'm not claiming it's, it's uh, scientific uh, uh, analysis of, of human hearts. Any other questions about anything, anything at all? Uh, but I do really wholeheartedly believe that, uh, that for all of us, it is part of the human experience that you do need to rediscover your Islam at the very least every seven to 10 years. If you're in a continuous process of learning in such a way that, you're, that your world is getting expanded, then it might be happening already. A lot of times we start learning only the same thing over and over again. And I'm saying that that will often not sustain us. So it can happen while you aren't noticing. That is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Any other questions at all, inshallah? How do you recover? So, or how do you rediscover? So the, uh, ask some of these questions when we start finishing the course. But the short answer is to keep working on learning. Learning Dean especially, but not limited to Dean in different ways. Uh, so if there are no more questions, inshallah, what's going to be, what's going to be our test? 
Um, I'm technically think of, thinking of an oral exam. Oral exam, not in the way a doctor thinks of an oral exam or a dentist. I'm thinking of the way a teacher thinks of an oral exam. And so you're basically going to be responsible for al-Fatiha all the way up to IO39 of al-Baqarah. It's not going to be like some, some intense exam. Most of my academic classes are easy as some of you. I mean, I think even Laiba and Abdullah Ansari got A's in my class. Okay, anyway. Uh, yes, I mean, everything's a test. Um, so a thing to imagine without looking further into the Quran is that the first command makes sense. Be the abd of your rab. The second command makes sense. Turn away from everyone else, everything else. So then try to imagine what the third command would be. Don't look ahead yet. First try to imagine what the third command would be. And then that's what we'll get into, inshallah, tomorrow. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wa akhir da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah Ta'ala reward you all. And once again, uh, may Allah Ta'ala keep all of us, friends and family, and those who are struggling, uh, healthy, and and such. And uh, I will also upload the, the recording, inshallah. Okay. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.